We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And coming this July to Film Movement Plus are a dozen new films, including an Olympic salute to the Summer Games featuring the powerful sports documentary Over the Limit, the boxing documentary Hands of God, which follows the Iraqi national boxing team and executive produced by Oscar winner Alfonso Coron, and Koza, Goat, a Slovakian drama starring former Olympians, as well as Roman Bondarchuk's Volcano, Nanny Moretti's Khan Award winner Caro Diario, Kathy Yon's feature film debut Dead Pigs, and the North American premiere of the campy film within a film, Holy Beast, starring Geraldine Chapman and Udo Kier. All of these will be debuting over the course of July on Film Movement Plus. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today's guest is an impressive critic, lecturer, and author. It's the insightful Mr. Adam Naiman, a contributor to The Ringer, Criterion, Cinemascope, and more. The Toronto-based Adam has written books on Showgirls, Ben Wheatley, The Coen Brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, and his newest title, David Fincher Mind Games, is available for pre-order now and will be released in November from Abrams. Adam, I'm so honored to have you here. How are you doing and how's summer treating you so far? Uh, I'm in a rare moment of total quiet in my house. I have two children under the age of four who are both elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, I told my daughter I was doing a podcast uh, on on Gene Tierney and she didn't know who that was. So that means all things are as they should be. Uh, and, and, and I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Oh, of course. Well, I'm very excited for your upcoming book on David Fincher. For those listening who might not be familiar, what can you tell us about it? And have you written or are you working on anything else, articles, etc., that you would like us to be on the lookout for? Well, of course, David Fincher, and you such an obscure filmmaker, you know, mm-hmm. so many, so many Americans may not know who David Fincher is. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, writing about David Fincher is a challenge because he's such a brand name uh, filmmaker. These are movies that a lot of people have seen. They have opinions on. There's a lot of discourse. So like the Coen's book and the, the Paul Thomas Anderson book, it's trying to um, not only write, I guess, a kind of auteurist overview of the films, but kind of interrogate what that authorship means. And mm-hmm. I think that in the case of David Fincher, you have a filmmaker who cut his teeth and made his name 
in advertising and music videos in the 80s when that stuff was seen in some ways as encroaching on or invading Hollywood cinema. Like people have been worrying about that since the 60s, but in the 80s, it really happened. And so what does it mean that you have a, a filmmaker who once likened music video production to a jukebox? You put a quarter in one end and you get your video out the other and who made all these commercials to then make a cinema that is in its way very anti-consumerist, uh, anti-advertising or satirical and subversive about advertising. So that's one of the angles that I'm sort of trying to to, to take. I mean, we can call David Fincher a mainstream filmmaker, but is he genuinely subversive? Is he part of the machine? And a movie like Mank, which seems in some ways to be drawing parallels between the studio system of the 30s and this, con this moment of streaming content. I think the parallels exist both in the way the movie's made and kind of the way that it's, it's staged and written. Um, so yeah, had David Fincher on my mind for a long time. And then otherwise just... Uh, just, just, just freelancing and waiting to teach a course this fall at U of T, which will be on the Coens and, and, and Paul Thomas Anderson and on issues of authorship in their work, which is a really wonderful opportunity to teach at the place I went to film school a long time ago. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, very cool. I've been a fan of David Fincher's for so many years. I remember seeing um, Seven scared me to death. I, I don't know that I slept a week, uh, but then the game was really my breakthrough and it was cool because you could see his background in advertising and music videos and the way he played with sort of subliminal messaging and I just think that that film in particular is one that I'm really looking forward to reading in your book I actually reviewed it for my high school paper back then and broke it down and I love what he did with it I think it's one that doesn't get as much love as it should so, um, but yeah, I love all the movies, was, basically. There was a terrific piece that listeners can find by a, by a really great film critic, Gina Telleroli, wrote about um, particularly Michael Douglas's suit in the game in the mm -hmm. passages where he's kind of sent to, to Mexico. Um, oh, yes. And he's and married. He, yes. Yeah, and just the way that it, the way that clothing and and wardrobe in that movie sort of function on a on a symbolic and kind of character coding level, like that idea that you know his 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 fashion, his his clothing, his aesthetics sort of degrade and 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 deteriorate, you know, along with other aspects of his life. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, that was actually the movie. It's funny you bring up the game of all of his films because it's the one that. I actually found in some ways the hardest to write about because I'm trying to group the movies in the book thematically. It's not just oh, okay. and trying to figure out which of his movies I wanted to pair it with was a challenge, not because it didn't fit, but because I kept seeing fits in a bunch of different directions. And I thought that what you said about the subliminal imagery in it is, is very apt because one, one of the reasons I pair it with fight club in the book does have to do with that idea of subliminal imagery. And yes. also the idea that they're both very, much, I think, metaphorical movies about movie making. I mean, not yep. just that Brad Pitt is a uh, an amateur film splicer, you know, but mm -hmm. they're sort of both about these coordinated terror campaigns in the game by the Faceless Corporation and in Fight Club by Brad Pitt and his folks that have aspects of movie making and movie staging to them, right? Yes. And, I, I, and then in a larger sense, so many of Fincher's movies are about PR campaigns that are kind of being waged in social spaces. I mean, that's what Seven is very much about. It's weirdly this kind of mm -hmm. messaging where it's like, I have something to say and I'm going to use the material world and the people in it sort of as props in this larger scale advertising. He's very interested in the idea of subversive artists. And 
I'm not sure that that makes him one himself, but he's certainly interested in it. Yeah, I recently did a podcast episode on Fight Club and actually Zero Effect with Noah Gatel. And so we broke down both of those films. Yeah, so I am very psyched for this book. Oh, right on. Why that's really exciting. That's kind of you to say. And uh, yeah, that's coming out in uh, in November. Very cool. Well, when it came to selecting a topic for today's episode, it was something close to serendipitous timing wise. I'd been corresponding with a few other guests about themes and Megan Abbott asked which eras and or subjects weren't as well covered as others. I looked everything over and realized that classic film had been largely overlooked in favor of more modern fare and male subjects were much more popular than female ones. No sooner did I press send than I heard from you. I think you suggested a couple things, but as soon as you said Gene Tierney, I knew that was the winner. Weirdly, I think you opened the floodgates too, because this has been a great summer of classic film talk and women in movies of a podcast, so I appreciate that. I love Gene Tierney. Laura is my favorite film noir of all time, but I'm afraid I didn't know much about her beforehand, so I relish this opportunity to watch and learn more. Obviously, we will go into the films we chose in a second, but before we do that, I'd love to know what is it about Gene Tierney that is so singular and mesmerizing on screen? Well, that's a the, the 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 question is almost its own answer, which makes it a good question, not a bad one. I mean, <laughs> okay. she is singular. She is yeah. she is mesmerizing. I'm sure you know for 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 you as much as for me. There's a really widely circulated quote about her that you know anytime you you search her or or people talk about her, they have this line from Martin Scorsese, who is sort of you know the default ruling authority on all things. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and he said that he always considered her to be one of the underappreciated stars of the era, which is not untrue. But then when you actually go back and look at, you know, journalism from the period or coverage from the period, I mean, she was not underappreciated. She was, you know, scouted almost from (laughs) not infancy, but, you know, scouted, scouted from teenagerhood and thrown into to lead roles with big actors at an early age. She was nominated for an Oscar for Leave Her to Heaven. She was a, a box office draw. She had one of uh, the most amazing kind of extracurricular dating lives of, yeah. of, of oh my gosh but, yes <laughs> but, but there is but there is some truth to the fact that partially because the roles petered out for her in sync with issues in her personal life and partially because I think women's roles started changing towards the late 50s early 60s the career didn't really continue Mm-hmm. There's a period of 10 years there where she's in a number of, of, of you know, real bangers and then a kind of a, a, a slow fade out of, out of stardom, which again has to do with, 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 with a lot of issues in her personal life. So like the yeah. career didn't have a very long tail. No. Um, but no, I think that uh, when you talk about, it, it's been a year of talking about classic film and a year of talking about, uh, you know, different, different, different roles and different movie stars. It's also an interesting thing to talk about the fact of Gene Tierney's beauty. There's sort of a weird push pull in social media spaces about, do we talk about actors in terms of their physique? Do we talk about actors in terms of their beauty? Are actors erotic objects to be looked at in movies, which has been prevailing wisdom for a long time? Yeah. Or is it a slap on the wrist? How do you phrase it? Is it something you can say in a tweet, but if you hinge a review on it, you know, is the review kind of disqualified? Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that with Tierney, what's where it starts for me is I think where it started for a lot of people with her, which is to 
to to to look at her is to just be enraptured. Um, yeah. The way the way that her particular kind of beauty stands up on camera, the yep. slight darkness that she has, mm-hmm. the slight severity of it, and particularly in Laura, the bottomless mystery in that yes. portrait, where yep. the beauty the, the beauty is not a mystery, but whatever else is in that portrait is hugely enigmatic. Um, yeah, it's yeah. ethereal, but there's like a danger underneath. And um, I was rereading some of the Criterion essays before this, and Megan Abbott wrote a banger of an essay on Leave Her to Heaven. And she kind of opened with like, how do you talk about this movie without talking about her beauty and her eyes? Because they're very expressive. And yeah, it it's true. I think um, it's kind of like movie stars as iconography, she knew how to use her um, her looks or her persona well, or the people putting her in the movies did as well. And yeah, it is an interesting push-pull there with uh, well, discussing her. Well, I mean, we'll get to Laura, obviously, yeah. but, you know, one, I mean, that is literally a movie about a yes. character who falls, <laughs> with, who, uh, who falls in love with an image. Yeah, yeah. captivating. And, and you know, and as self-reflexive as Otto Preminger as a filmmaker could be, I mean, I don't think that that's the official mandate or mission statement or a, a scribble in the margin of the shooting script is like the portrait is what the movie is about. But more, <laughs> but, but, but more unconsciously, it's such a great starting point to talk about Gene Turney because to look at that portrait, as you say, ethereal and danger underneath, and the I would argue almost completely non-subjective fact of her beauty. Yes. All that that portrait, uh, all that that portrait kind of gives you. And then the ways the movie is designed to fill it in are surprising, unusual. And some people almost find, even though Laura has a great reputation as it should, I don't even know if as a great movie, it even lives up to that portrait, which is almost a compliment. (laughs) Like what backstory or what explanation can live up to that? idea that visual image which is the same thing that a movie like Rebecca is about Mm -hmm. you know uh, I would say that Gene Turney's portrait in Laura is so amazing that if you were to put it into Rebecca it would actually work for the it would yeah there is a gothic yes gothic tinge which is interesting because I've been re-watching and also checking out some other uh, movies with Tierney that I hadn't seen before, including Dragonwick, which I found on YouTube. Yeah. Then I guess TCM just ran it too. So I kind of watched a bad print of it. But that is very much in the mold of Rebecca. And so it's sure. more gothic. But yet, Laura, exactly, there are some gothic overtones to that film noir. So. Perfect. Yeah, and also, I mean, again, we'll get to it in our in our yeah. talk. But I, I rewatched it recently after not seeing it for a while because I was prepping for this podcast. I mean, I thought I knew the film well, but watching again, I was struck. And I'm not using this word pejoratively, and maybe we can get more into why I choose this particular adjective. But it's a very goofy movie. Like, it is, yeah. <laughs> very, 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 very logically, goofy. yes. <laughs> logically, but also the uh, and uh, the the <laughs> the way that the characters always kind of go in groups to do things. So I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna that's so but true. But why don't why don't you come along? And yep. it almost becomes like a traveling. A they all follow Dana Andrews. Yes, they all follow <laughs> Dana Andrews, which I think is great because then they're on hand to either corroborate or dispute or or disfigure the the information. And it's also funny, and I'm not at all trying to suggest an actual debt between the movies, but it's funny to think that that came out before Rashomon, which mm-hmm. it's not 
exactly the same as, but I do like that idea of a disputed past or different points of view on similar events, on a similar character. So it's post-Citizen Kane in that sense, yeah. but pre-Rashomon, and then kind of just a funny continuum of, of storytelling techniques between these three very great movies. Very true. And it basically, it's the men shaping her story for her, which I find interesting. Yes, but for today, we've selected the films Laura from 1944, arguably her most famous title, as well as Leave Her to Heaven, which was made a year later, followed by two from 1950, Whirlpool and Night in the City. So for those listening who might not have seen the films, do proceed with caution as there will likely be spoilers ahead. Kicking things off, we have the granddaddy of all noir films, at least in my eyes, because I love it so, director Otto Preminger's Laura, starring Gene Tierney as the title character, whose murder police detective Dana Andrews is trying to solve by acquainting himself with the blue blood vultures who were in the young woman's life, including her possessive Dalton Trumbo-like sardonic writer mentor played by Clifton Webb, her dim on-again, off-again opportunistic fiancé played by Vincent Price, who played her fiancé quite often, and her jealous rich aunt played by Judith Anderson. Growing more in love with the idea of Laura as the case continues, which is translated memorably on screen through that striking portrait of Tierney that hangs in her apartment, Andrews gets the shock of his life when one night he opens his eyes to find the woman standing over him very much alive. So then the question becomes, if Laura hasn't been murdered, who has? And what role, if any, did this beguiling woman play in her death? Obviously, this is a favorite and it's twisty. There's a lot to unpack. So I will stop there because I can't wait to discuss it with you. So what are some of your thoughts on Laura? I know we mentioned a few. Yeah, very that was a very concise TCM quality synopsis of the movie. It's a hard movie. It's it a is hard. hard. Thank to, you. To, it's a hard movie to sum up yeah. the plot because there's a big portion at the beginning that's sort of this weird head to head between the writer and the detective, mm-hmm. which is like kind of an interrogation and kind of a memory play and really kind of about the Clifton Webb characters, just like grand bitchiness and literary pretensions where the woman feels almost incidental to what they're talking about. There's a yes. long passage at the beginning. That's all this sort of like very intricate Jerryan camera work mm-hmm. and these two very different actors bouncing very different modes of kind of maleness off each other. Yeah. And you're like, well, so who's Laura? And yeah. that I think is very deliberate because I think it is a movie about men who, who talk and project, especially the Clifton Webb uh, character, but who, who, who talk, project, fantasize, you know, idealize about this 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 woman, but also as a way of you know reckoning with their own failings and flaws and 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 imperfections, right? Because in yes. everyone's version of Laura, they're the one for her, and mm-hmm. that's not really true. I mean, it's not just factually not true, but she's not the person who she's described as being by all these people. She has elements of their memories of her, elements of their recollections of her but when she shows up back from the dead like almost a ghost or a, 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 a zombie or, or an apparition you realize she's not any of these things she's just been misrepresented to this point and it's almost a disappointment given the putative kind of feminism of that idea that she does have to fall in love with this somewhat blocky detective 
Yeah. You know, I'm not criticizing. calls women names, uh, as yeah. Clifton Webb likes to point out. Yes. Which is which is convention and satisfying yeah. convention. And we should never apply contemporary lenses of you know subversiveness to to, to genre material. I mean, it, it's a very satisfying movie on those terms, but you know, I'm not sure that any of the men in the movie are ultimately worthy of the character or of the way tyranny sort of inhabits yeah. uh, the, 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 the character. But I think the fun in the movie is all, and you know, I'm betraying my prejudices or my, my preferences here, but I think the fun of the movie is Preminger. He's mm-hmm. constantly finding ways to shoot these scenes yes. and to keep this ridiculous plot moving. I know. If you stop and think about it, it falls apart immediately. Totally. But I love that idea too. I was noticing all these strange men who couldn't be more different that are all in her orbit. And I love that idea. Uh, Dana Andrews has the great line, I must say, for a charming, intelligent girl, you certainly surround yourself with a remarkable collection of dopes, which yeah. reminded me of American Graffiti, when Toad says, you seem to know a lot of weird guys. And I just, I love that idea of this beautiful woman is attracting people that wouldn't hang out together, wouldn't know each other, but are just like drawn to her like a laser beam. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think many critics have mentioned it. So I'm not trying to take, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to sort of float this as a fully original idea, but there's a way in which Laura exists in between not just Rebecca and Rashomon, as I said, but also between Rebecca and Vertigo. Right mm-hmm. between these two Hitchcock movies that are all about images of of women. I mean, in Laura, mm-hmm. um, there's not a character who's trying to literally remake her the way that James Stewart does with Kim Novak in Vertigo. But there is a weird kind of control fetishism in the Clifton Webb character. Yeah. You know, he's he's so in love with his own writing and within his own words that he wants the version of Laura who he lives with to love him and admire him and, and exalt him for all of that. And so the image he has of her in his head is, is of this, you know, great appreciator, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that she's some kind of great appreciator yes. for, for him. But I mean, that's not sort of who she wants to be. And there's some startling, startlingly contemporary stuff about her in the workplace early on in the film where we're so cued by movies made even 10 years later, like in that, that happy homemaker period where, you know, women are never shown actually at work, but we see that Laura is quite brilliant at her, at her, you know, you know, quite brilliant at her job. She recruits him. Um, And, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to misremember it because I watched it only a couple of nights ago, but it's a job that really kind of has to do with advertising, which is an interesting thing for her to be doing because advertising is also all about image and selling yes. people on the, on the idea of something yeah. selling a platonic ideal of a thing. And the movie is sort of about the platonic ideal of a person. Very true. Yeah. And I couldn't help thinking at the end of the movie, we still really don't know who she is herself totally. because yeah. men keep um, summing it up or seeing her the way that they want to see, you know, when you fall in love with somebody and you're idealizing them way out of proportion, you mentioned um, Clifton Webb wanting an appreciator or a cheerleader. And it kind of reminded me, of course, this is perfect that Martin Scorsese loves this movie too, because he made one, actually I talked about with Megan Abbott on the podcast, Life Lessons, the short film from New York Mm -hmm. stories, which had um, Rosanna Arquette and Nick Nolte. And it was about a painter and his um, muse or an aspiring painter slash assistant slash girlfriend. And so you can kind of see that dynamic Vertigo has always been known as the movie that directors love the most because it's all about control. And so this kind of has a very good through line to Vertigo. So I like that comparison a lot. 
Well, and to, and again, I think that sometimes drawing equations between between biography and movies can be specious. I mean, it's often historically helpful to know what was going on with someone yes. or where someone was. But I mean, we should sort of say that at that point in Turney's career, she's not quite a newcomer, mm-hmm. still more or less an ingenue. But I mean, by Hollywood standards, you know, she's in her mid twenties, so this is not, you know, an yeah. absolute kind of coming out party. But I think that in some ways, the lack of massive fame, massive exposure, and a weirdly perceived, not actual, but a perceived lack of acting chops all make her work very well in that part. Extremely. Yes. You know? I couldn't like, agree like not, not to the point where it's like Joan Fontaine and Rebecca, where the person comes out of nowhere, which is perfect for a character who thinks of herself yep. as a nothing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, with, with, with Laura, the casting is great on two levels. She works physically in order for the... The, the, the poetry and mystery of the movie to work. And then she kind of gives you levels and gives you notes that you're not expecting. And it's not coincidental to me that that was one of the performances that first got her a fair amount of acclaim. Yes. And a, a fair amount of respect. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too. It wasn't originally Preminger. I can't remember who was working on the film first, which director, but it wasn't going well. And I read it was partly because um, Tierney and Dana Andrews weren't being directed or told what to do and it was just there wasn't a controlled hand or somebody guiding it and so I think when Preminger uh, it was a perfect marriage of this is what you do because both Dana Andrews and Jean Tierney who worked together a number of times really did like taking direction and being told yeah well her, well, her book which I figured we'd get to it at, at some point there's there's much more powerful stuff to talk about in her autobiography than film directors. But I will say that in self-portrait, when Tierney reflects on the sort of very consistent sort of like high-end European auteurs she worked with in the first half of her career, because she worked with von Sternberg and with um, Preminger, but also with Fritz, with with, with Lubitsch. Yes. She talked about. In Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. Yeah. she, She said that Lubitsch, and she's a, she's a good writer. And I, I, I do want to talk about her book, so we will. She's she's a very good writer, too. And the way she writes about Lubitsch is very funny, where she says she thought that he was intolerable at first. Yes, and then yelled at him, yeah. Yelling at her and, you know, some, something to the effect of, you know, my job is to yell at you. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, not that much. And he kind of melted and relaxed and they became friends. But constantly she expresses this almost not just tolerance and it's a very much a generational thing and I think has to do with her personal worldview and some of her somewhat conservative politics but like she didn't mind being controlled by filmmakers no no she was she was happy yes to, to, to work in that mode which makes her very much a creature of her era but also speaks I think to some of the interesting things about her performances in Leave Her to Heaven and, and obviously in Whirlpool, the way that that manifests in her acting and in her character is fascinating. Yeah, no, it's so true. And in the men she chose to date, um, yeah. these are very dominant men. And <laughs> when I watched uh, one interview, I think it was a biography, it was on the um, Laura Blu-ray. It was uh, like an hour long and they were interviewing uh, her husband at the time, Oleg Cassini. Cassini, yeah. Yes, who was a costume designer. And he just the way he was talking about her and their marriage, like when she was married, he's like, well, now she's my wife and she will do what I say. And so it was kind of, she did sort of seek out that and didn't mind it, liked it. I think it's maybe what she grew up with too. Yeah. Well, it is. When we get to Leave Her to Heaven, some of the biographical information about 
her and her dad is pretty yes. interesting mm-hmm. given the sort of paternal worship aspect of of that movie. But I mean, one of the other things that's worth sort of saying about Laura is you, you I, I thought really smartly sort of called it like one of the granddaddies or originals of of noir because period in terms of period, it it does predate almost any movie that is sort of officially referred to as noir. Yeah. And it and it and it does fit not because I just did a piece for Criterion on on neo-noir. So obviously on movies that are sort of reaching back to that period instead of the period itself. Yeah. But you know, it really did seem like it was a group of American financed and produced, but I think crucially European directed films in the early 40s that got that 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 taxonomy around them and Mm -hmm. uh you know it's interesting because she's not a femme fatale no not at all in laura that that trope is not really what the movie is 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 working with she's a woman of mystery and like some other noir you know lady she comes back from the dead or she isn't actually really dead yeah to, to begin with but her sexuality her romance her love her feelings they're never coded negatively mm-hmm. and yet and I don't know what you would think of this I'm dying to hear what you think she's also not really a victim in the movie either if she's a victim no. more in an abstract way of, mm-hmm. of, of this again of men's vanity but she's not a murder victim and she's not really a victim in the story she's in a little bit of peril at the end in a very mechanical plot way mm-hmm. but it's not the way the character is played at all yeah, there is a craftiness about her. Like when she comes back and then she goes to a cabin and um, or she goes to talk to uh, Vincent Price. And I mean, so she knew uh, that somebody died. She knew who it was uh, at her apartment. So there is a duplicitness about her uh, that I find really interesting because they don't delve into it. Like you said, she's not a femme fatale but there's a moral flexibility or a questioning there that I do find very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's this stuff I think that in tandem with the wonderfully twisty script and that very, again, like we mentioned Fincher off the top. And in my book, I allude a lot to the comparisons people have made from Preminger to Fincher, just in the idea of directors. And we're talking about very different eras in terms of trash and also very different eras in terms of, I don't know what constitutes genre, but the people who've linked Fincher to Preminger, I don't think are wrong, not just because of the taskmaster controlling style, but because when they're good and both Preminger and Fincher for me are good way more often than they're not, Mm -hmm. they, they, they do find a way to not condescend to the material, but to to make the cheesiness or the pulpiness of, of certain material, like, you know, feel very edifying. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. not condescending to making B-ish movies. No. And, and, and I think I think Laura, you know, in terms of the way Preminger made it is is, is as good as anything that, that he did in that period. Yeah, perfect. Well, our next film is often the subject of debate in noir circles. Is it a noir? Or is it a melodrama? And is Tyranny a femme fatale? Or is she not, since she's the film's anchor and the one pulling down everyone who gets in her way herself? We're talking about the vibrant psychological chiller, Leave Her to Heaven, from director John M. Stahl. Based on the novel by Ben Ames Williams, the film finds the wealthy socialite Ellen Tierney falling into a whirlwind romance with a handsome novelist played by Cornell Wilde, whom she swears looks and sounds just like her deceased beloved father. 
quickly marrying the writer named Richard Harland, Ellen, we realize, is not only super competitive about everything, but also super possessive, willing to not only cut people out of her life at will, including Vincent Price, again, as her previous fiance, but she'll take far deadlier steps to get what she wants, which is Richard all to herself, gorgeously shot with Leon Shamroy's incandescently bright cinematography. This has turned into quite a cult favorite over the years. And whether or not it's true nor, and obviously I can see the logic in both arguments, it's damn entertaining. So what are your thoughts on Leave Her to Heaven? It, it is damn entertaining. And of the four movies that I rewatched specifically because I knew we were going to chat. It was the one that I was kind of hooting, hooting and hollering while watching because yeah. it uh, it really is kind of a romp. I really like the way it, I really like the way it's framed with a couple guys talking. They're like, "Oh man, you should hear what happened." You yeah, know, like, like you're has, not going to believe this. Yeah, you're not going <laughs> to believe this. And you know, from there, pretty left to right, but you know, as a flashback. And I think it's funny that on the in the first meeting between her and Cornell on the train, not only is she obviously reading, you know, his book, which is a pretty good pickup, thing, yeah. but you see her pretending to sleep, right? So it's like this very faint yes. moment of, of of helplessness and lack of, of of consciousness, even though, I mean, metaphorically speaking, she's kind of got her eye on him the whole time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because here you have a movie about a woman who is simultaneously uh, a control freak, mm-hmm. right? Which is... a not a positive, uh, you know, maybe not a positive trope for, for either gender, but, you know, certainly not a submissive or, or victimized character, but who's also completely helpless, right? Yeah, and, yeah, there's what, something controlling and driving her, yep. Yeah, and what she's helpless and thrall to is this idea, I think, not just this idea of marriage and, and family that she took out of her own family, but like, you know, this idea that he looks a lot like her dad. Mm-hmm. whose ashes she carries around. And so, you know, it, <laughs> it it's also true. it's also a good double bill with vertigo in that sense, because it's someone who's obsessed with the image of somebody who's been lost, and they're trying mm-hmm. to project that image now onto a new partner. And I think the blankness that Cornell Wilde has in this film is, is very effective, because he's oblivious and clueless and you know he has the mounting suspicion that often women have in thrillers of this period it's like something's wrong with my lover or something's wrong with my husband this is very much a something's wrong with my wife but he doesn't have very strong qualities of his own I think which is not necessarily the way he is in some of the other films he's played but it's the way that he acts in this one you can see her projecting her dead dad and also all of her possessiveness and competitiveness and anxieties onto him it, and because she in this film i think is so full yeah like, this is the fullest gene tyranny was in any film in that period and that's heightened by the cinematography which is again just incandescent the way that she's lit and the way that her cheeks and her lips and her hair and her eyes kind of just burst otherworldly yeah otherworldly yeah. yeah no that's so true what you were saying about um I think this would make a really interesting double bill with Laura because people are projecting onto her and then she projects onto Cornell Wilde. And what else is interesting is you could kind of see this as, you know, maybe like maybe Laura wasn't that innocent. Of course, she's not playing Laura, but it's it's an interesting um, back to back bill there. But yeah, I love that. I love that. It's kind of a reversal of the gender roles of the time because um, 
he might think he's picking her up, but like you said, she had her eye on him right away and was kind of engineering that sort of meet cute, which is, it is very cute. And she's the one that winds up proposing to him. She kisses him first, I believe. And she's kind of the driving force throughout. She tries to sleep with him when um, his brother is on the other side of the wall and he gets distracted. So he's kind of the stereotypical female character of the time. And she's the aggressive, um, the woman uh, who's usually the male role, which I thought was really cool too. Oh, I, I think, I think you're right. And also the deep love she has for him. Yeah. Is counter to a lot of the femme fatales of the period. Like you look at a film like double indemnity, which I'm sure you've seen and probably oh, yes. mm-hmm. podcast, but I mean, the whole point of the Barbara Stanwyck character in that movie, she doesn't like him. No, no. Like men, it's like body heat. Like, yep. It's like body heat. You know, what's the, that line in body heat? You're dumb. I like that. In a, in I a like man. that in a man. Yeah. <laughs> she, she worshiped uh, in, in leave her to heaven. Uh, she, she, she worships him. And again, that's a carryover from this, this father love that she has. And again, the movie is playing with the kind of loaded images that if they were to appear in a movie now, and I mean, this whole idea, I mean, th- that movie would never be made this way now, mm-hmm. but an audience now, watching, you know, Gene Tierney very, you know, voluptuously atop a horse, for instance, you know. With yeah, with little, her ashes. And with her, her ashes or whatever like else. Like a Western, yeah. yeah. Like a Western, you know, also like Freudian to the point of, oh, God, yes. of, of yeah. comedy in terms of the dad stuff. But the film, well, I'm not going to say it plays it straight. It's not Circean, like it's not playing it for, for, no. for Kim. And that mutating quality the movie has that you alluded to, where is it noir? Is it melodrama? Is it is it tragedy? Is it comedy? The director, you know, Stahl, he really manages that, I think, very well. Because structurally, it's a strange movie. It really is very strange. Yes. Very, very strange. Yeah. And you were mentioning um, Cirque. What's interesting is Stahl, I believe, didn't he direct like the original Magnificent Obsession? Did. And um, another one that Cirque wound up making, I can't remember. It was Magnificent Obsession and Imitation of Life. He did those. So you can kind of see the same sensibility going through this. Like if you love Cirque, you're going to probably love this movie, but it isn't um, as romantic or whatever. There's a tongue in cheek quality, like a satirical quality going on, you know, um, when she's racing people in the water early on and like, well, she always wins. I mean, they're setting things up. So it is, it's kind of campy, but in like the best way. Yeah. Well, and people, when you look at the scholarship on the movie, people have all the, and, and I, this isn't said sarcastically. I mean, this is the way I like to read about movies. You know, people, sort of overlay all kinds of mythic significance or illusion onto the kind of complex she has with her father. She's sort of a water creature. You know, there's a lot of violence associated with water in the movie, especially the mid-film drowning set piece, which belongs on any list of the most shocking Oh set my gosh, in, in one of the scariest things. Of that period, you know, terrifying. And we'll talk about it in a second. I mean, so there is a lot of intention, as you're saying, you know, in terms of how she's photographed, the elements that she's kind of associated with. But there's also times where the film structure seems, and I say only seems because I think it's an almost perfect movie. It almost seems to be running away with itself. Like you have this weird declining or this weird uh, sort of declining action after her character passes away, where Mm -hmm. she's still tormenting people almost from beyond the grave. 
Yes. You know, and the tension of that character and the performance of that character has kind of gone out of the movie, but you still have a whole courtroom drama in yeah. the last 15 or 20 minutes of that, of that movie. It's just very abundant, you know? It's, it's a little long without being an epic, but it's also just thing after thing after thing happens. And after where you would think a movie like that might end with the prime character and main, you know, prime mover of the script kind of on her deathbed, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it just keeps going. It does. One thing I really like about it is she's not cartoonish. She is fully three-dimensional. I feel like you brought up Freud and there's some Greek illusions going on. Um, but I also like that you do feel sympathy for her because what is her big crime? I mean, before the real crimes, her big crime is that she is obsessed and loves her husband and wants to be with him. She makes a comment like they hadn't been alone any day since they married. Um, I thought that was interesting. And then he's inviting people over. He's used to having just guys around while well, his, his kid brother and also the man who's like his best friend who works on the property. So you do feel a little bit like they, they did just get married. They should have a proper honeymoon. Uh, so you do feel a little sympathy. And then, of course, she takes that to 11. But um, I, I like that about it. I think today she would be too like boiling bunny rabbits or too cartoonishly evil. Yeah. Well, the comparison's been made by a number of writers to Gone Girl, which again, I, I don't mean to keep bringing Fincher up. Oh, no, you're fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a good comparison in that, you know, Gone Girl is a film that doesn't just, you know, have this autonomous manipulative female character, but I think even more than Leave Her to Heaven gives her a voice. I mean, in Leave Her to Heaven, she says this stuff to her husband. In Gone Girl, she says this stuff to the audience. Yes. And there's a there's a complicity there that even if not everyone buys into it or everyone feels sympathetic to it, the movie is at least sort of trying to make you see things her way. Mm -hmm. But I think that even without that fourth wall breaking or that super modernist storytelling technique, that Leave Her to Heaven, for the reasons you're saying, does kind of get there. And there is an amazing moment. It's one of Tierney's great acting moments in any of her movies where uh, after he's figured out that, you know, uh, his younger uh, disabled brother's drowning wasn't exactly an accident. And once he's figured out that the miscarriage that she's had was kind of her own. Oh, God. Yeah. It's a very pre-amazing Amy kind of. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he he's pressing her on this and she's denying and she's denying. And then she kind of has this great moment where she kind of just draws herself up. She's very small gene tyranny compared mm -hmm. to Gordon And She sort of just says, I'm paraphrasing. She's like, yeah, no, I did those things. Yeah. And I, I did them because I love you and you have to understand this. And it's, it's a moment that represents like some kind of psychotic break. break. And within yeah. the movie's morality, we're not necessarily supposed to be on her side, but she does own it. And that's why the last half of the film or third of the film is so interesting because at that point it's out in the open. The yeah. character owns it. The mystery has kind of been unraveled. And then it's sort of more like, well, how does a relationship proceed from that mm -hmm. point? And of course it proceeds into, you know, more death, but it's a, yeah. it's a great moment because it's not the climax of the movie. No. No. Another thing I love about it is every character kind of like Laura, all of the characters are interesting you maybe don't want to hang out with them, but the same thing with uh, Leave Her to Have. Actually, the same thing with Night in the City. All of the characters are just fully realized and very oh. interesting. And I yeah. love that. Uh, in this one, I wanted to know more. You like wanted to spend more time with her mother and her adopted sister, who she um, basically doesn't even really consider a sister. And their relationship is really interesting. Jean Crane um, says something like, "Well." 
she adopted me just not like both of the parents not the father just the mother it's an interesting um way of saying it kind of because ellen basically owned the father so i find the supporting players just as interesting and i think they all did excellent jobs well they are and we and we should give a shout out for both movies we've discussed to vincent price who before yes before he learned, I think, wonderfully to lean into the persona he helped make for himself and become almost, mm-hmm. you know, he's one of those actors who's, if not quite a whole genre, like he's certainly a persona unto himself. You have other people who have given Vincent Price performances, right? Yes. But I mean, prior to that or in tandem with that, he's also just a really compelling dramatic actor and that slightly effete quality he had before he's playing like Witchfinder generals and you know yeah the, the, you know hosting you know the mask of the red death and stuff he's just like very very oily and seductive and and off-putting and annoying like he blends all those things really well in both of those parts he's quite yes. hateful in parts of lever to heaven but without no yeah price you know Yeah, I love that. When I was doing research, I read, um, I couldn't find her autobiography, as I said, off air. But I read this other book, it was just 100 pages, kind of summing it up with full of interview quotes. And one of them was from Vincent Price. And he was talking about how excited he was that Leave Her to Heaven was going to be in color, because he said, (laughs) people have no idea how beautiful Jean Tierney is. And like, even on film, she's more beautiful in real life, but they were, he was so excited. He's like, now everyone is going to see why when I'm around Gene Tierney, my characters always lose their minds. And he was talking about, yeah. Uh, and Dragonwick, And I can't remember if he was in another one with her, I but three, I think it's the three. Okay. Yeah. Which is, which is a lot. It is. Yes. I, she did. I was trying to count how many Dana Andrews, at least three. At least yeah. three. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting when you talk about her beauty, too, because we obviously have to keep circling to it. I mean, when she's in the boat in the scene where she lets the boy sort of yes. drown, she's incredibly beautiful. Um, yes. You know, because there's the a sunglasses. sunglasses yeah. And there's a stillness to what she's doing. It's almost as if she could be posing for a portrait or a candid snapshot or whatever else. Typically, murder is uh, has some exertion attached mm-hmm. to it no. you know yeah and there's something about the fact that it's a failure to act and it's this almost vo- not voyeuristic but it's like she's kind of watching it unfold and we- yeah. she's watching him sink and we're watching her watch him i mean hitchcockian gets overused a lot and i'm not sure that the scene is necessarily you know hitchcockian but it has such sick kind of dread yes to it. and it's hugely perverse it is. It's very stoic. It's kind of the opposite of in a boat, um, American tragedy or right. a place in the sun. It isn't that you just, no. she's very stoic, very matter of fact and taking pleasure. You can see in her face, sort of, I mean, she plays it very straight, but as no, no, the pleasure, the pleasure is there. Yeah. You can tell. And even though she's behind those sunglasses, like, you know what she's thinking and just like, you know, almost there, Danny, it's the most eerie sequence. It's, I think the one of the most violent scenes in a movie, basically, and uh, yeah, it's terrifying. Oh, and and it it gives an inter- There's an interesting like you know pivot we can use the movie for, which is that you know again through her autobiography and probably through what what you've read and through I guess the you know the acknowledged stuff about her. Not only is that made in a period where her star and her box off fortunes are rising along with the pressures of those things. Not only is this made around the period to this very public marriage that she yes, has and her child with her child, but then this weird double 
resonance where in her life she ended up being sued by her father you know before oh, his yes death. he took all her money yep he, he, or he tried he wanted to and he felt in some you know it was it was devastating to her because she idolized her father and you know grew up so happily there and you know had very happy childhood for the most part and was both like encouraged but protected by her parents when she was scouted on that studio tour where someone saw her and was like, you are beautiful, come be in a movie. They were like, well, why don't you go to New York and work on your craft and learn to act? I mean, it was a very supportive environment. So that was really the kind of rug coming out from under her and very ugly. Mm -hmm. But there was also the fact that, yeah, her first daughter was born uh, deaf and then developed signs later in life. I mean, she refers in the book using outdated yeah, of course. Her yep. fault. I mean, it's when it was written, but you know, her, her, her daughter Tina was born mentally retarded and mm-hmm. um, she was underneath, and this goes without saying, like hugely devastated and conflicted about what it is she's supposed to, to, to do as a woman in that period and mm-hmm. problems in her marriage and, and, you know, trying to measure her expectations about being a mother with the challenges that she then faced. And none of that pertains at all to the literal making of Lever to Heaven, but the obsessive father worship in the film and the not one, but two scenes that are kind of like of uh, infanticide, yeah. you know, like uh, killing a young boy who's not actually her kid, but she has a semi-maternal role to, yes. and then her sort of self-abortion, which is shocking yeah. in the movie of that period too. It really is. Yeah, Absolutely. And we should and we and we should say, by the way, that you know, because we alluded to this off the top, then in addition to like Cassini at that time, I mean, she was linked at different times in her twenties. John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, who yep. she writes. In, That's in the what book. I was gonna. Yes. Yeah, he writes so uh, <laughs> so interestingly about that, and also yeah. Howard Hughes. Yeah, Howard Hughes. He helped pay for her daughter's uh, care yes, at, t- at times, and with John F. Kennedy, she didn't want to put her child in an institution. And so talking to John about, uh, was it Rose? Um, yeah. 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 It made her feel a little bit better. Like, Oh, you can just get care. She is somebody. And it's interesting. She was betrayed quite a bit, like with her father and then one after her death, which is very, very sad. Oleg Cassini had promised to give all of his money in his will for the care of both children and uh, he changed it. And so he didn't. So luckily she didn't see that betrayal. But yeah, there is a sadness about that. And I can't imagine making this movie at the same time as um, that had just happened in her personal life a few years earlier. The other thing I was very surprised by, and I mean, I knew the story, but I didn't realize it was about Jean Tierney, was Agatha Christie wrote The Mirror Cracked, um, about what had happened to Tierney, which for those listening that don't know, um, she developed German measles when she was pregnant. She was at some sort of Hollywood canteen for World War II, and a woman had sneaked out a Marine um, of her quarantine to go meet her because she was her favorite actress and had uh, German measles and obviously had given it to Tierney. Tierney was fine. The daughter, of course, um, developed all of these problems, sadly. And then a year later, uh, I think it was a year, maybe two, she came upon this woman again. And she's like, oh, I I had sneaked out of my quarantine to meet you. And Tierney was so dumbstruck, but then told all of these reporters what had happened. Agatha Christie heard it and wrote that 
book. So it makes me want to read that. So I can't imagine the anger, the frustration, all of the mix of emotions going on while she was making this movie uh, well, the, that dealt with similar things. Well, the book is written with some distance. I mean, she wrote it in her late fifties and it has quite a, it has quite a heart stopping opening, which is it begins with her uh, later in her life. Her mother's still alive. Her daughter, I think her other daughter at that point, I think has, has reached preteenhood or teenagehood. And it begins with her on a ledge. I mean, where yes. she, where she, where she walks yep. on a ledge contemplating uh, suicide for a number of reasons, which are not a direct correlation of, say, divorce or, or giving her child up for adoption, but mm -hmm. part of that, along with the then uh, undiagnosed or only quasi-diagnosed, you know, you know, depression and anxiety that she lived with, and mm -hmm. she 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 starts it that way because she just, you know, it's a very dramatic scene, and she actually talks about herself thinking at the time about. Uh, other famous people and other celebrities and their own struggles. And she's kind of very rationally or lucidly juxtaposing that in her head against this sort of just overwhelming urge to end it. And then the way the book is structured is she kind of then circles back to the beginning, but leaves it as an ellipsis saying, you know, this was then when I would be subjected to all kinds of electroshock therapy and treatment, yes. which she then joins up with again, back up later in the book. But the the the, the book is very harrowing and it's not, overwritten and it's not written as a plea for mm -hmm. for sympathy and it's not written exhibitionistically it's written as this really sort of lucid book about how being famous and being beautiful and being visible didn't cause these things in her mind but they didn't help no <laughs> and the, the 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 contrast between the poised beautiful person on screen and how she was off screen it wasn't actually really that big a, a contrast she was that person except when she wasn't and then she yeah. said she barely felt like a person at all and yeah. you know she's in a period where the treatment of that stuff was not particularly sophisticated no, so it's a very, very harrowing very, very harrowing book because parts of it are just so addictive, like her talking about the young Howard Hughes or the young John yes. F. Kennedy or all these <laughs> stories are, are tremendously charming. But I think one of the reasons the book was a bestseller and because and why she went on all these talk shows that you can find on YouTube of her in her late yeah. 50s where she's being interviewed about it, uh, because it was a kind of sensationalistic movie star breakdown book. With it was one of the first to talk about mental illness like that. Yeah, yep. to, to, to talk about mental illness like that. There's one interview show where she she talks about living with it as opposed to making it go away. And that that was the thing oh, wow. that went into her later life. She, she, she said she had to get a handle on that it wasn't going to go away. And that some of the medications and treatments she was subjected to would, would make it go away for short periods. And then it would kind of always come back no matter what state her life was in. Mm -hmm. At one point, you know, the host asks her, you know, so what are your delusions? And one of them, and I'm not saying this, this isn't said to make fun of her. It's just very fascinating. Apparently, one of the things that she was terrified of was, you know, that, that the communists were coming, you know, like mm -hmm. just a very sort of period specific oh, thing yeah. ties into the, the, you know, people talk about that she was a, an avid supporter of of, 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 of Nixon and Reagan, like she's from a kind of old fashioned society family or, or, oh, yes. or had mm -hmm. a sort of very old fashioned, uh, you know, an old fashioned worldview in, in, in that sense. And that, and that comes through, which is, it's a book written by, I mean, it's written with a co-author, but the voice in it is so 
educated and lucid and, and, and detail-oriented and thoughtful that you kind of can't believe that it's a voice that came out the other end of some of the things that she went through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, our next film is one that I thought I had seen, but quickly discovered that I, in fact, had not. <laughs> Incidentally, I had the opposite experience with our next one after I it was positive, was new to me, only realized, nope, that's right. I had rated and watched Night in the City on Letterboxd a few years ago. Both of these movies were released in 1950, and we'll start with the title that premiered in theaters first, Whirlpool, which was once again directed by Laura Helmer Otto Preminger, based on Guy Endor's novel and adapted by Ben Hecht and Andrew Salt. Whirlpool stars Tierney as a wealthy wife of a respected psychiatrist who, as the film opens, is busted for shoplifting. Coming to her aid and finagling her store account files with uh, records of her past kleptomania is an astrologer and hypnotist, David Corvo, a charismatic cult-like figure well played by Jose Ferrer befriending her after the incident and telling her that he can cure her problems without her husband's knowledge. Despite the many, many red flags, the desperate Anne, played by Jean Tierney, allows herself to fall under the spell of this man who may have some nefarious motives all his own. As I said, this one was completely new to me, but I absolutely loved it. So I'm glad that you chose it. How about you? What's your take on Whirlpool? I mean, again, a beautifully made movie, a movie that I saw for the first time, I'm pretty sure, uh, on TV without seeking it out. I don't know if it was would have been on TCM or, you know, I'm old, I'm 40, so I don't know what, I don't know what I'm cable. I'm 40, yeah. I don't, I don't know what cable movie channel it would have been on in, in Toronto, but, you know, it's not like a movie I saw at a Preminger retrospective or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, it's a movie that I think is just fascinating because the putative hero, the ostensible hero, you know, her husband is completely oblivious. And yes. for a supposedly brilliant psychiatrist, he's pretty thick. Pretty clueless. And, yep. the, and the bad guy is tremendously intuitive and smart and self-interested and manipulative. And the movie really, I think, is carried by by him. Oh, not, to the point that yeah. Yeah, not, not to the point maybe that you're rooting for him, but in terms of the cinematic... Uh, vocabulary of the movie and the language Preminger is speaking, which is the the language of a control freak filmmaker. He obviously Mm -hmm. loves Corvo and admires his (laughs) ingenuity. Yeah. It's kind of like Clifton Webb, the the Clifton Webb of this, like absolutely. uh, When you watch Laura, you realize like Preminger just love, I mean, I love watching uh, Clifton Webb in that, but this is the same thing. Jose Ferrer, whenever he's not on the screen, you're just kind of like waiting for him to return to the film. Absolutely. One, I think it's also because to some extent her character, and this is maybe something that we'll talk about too in Night in the City. It doesn't make me think we picked the wrong movies. I think we picked the right ones. And I love talking about both of them, but the the role is mm-hmm. not as great a role. No, not at all. Or leave her to heaven. Is she very passive, very kind of acted on? What I think is interesting is the way that that character is wired subconsciously, which is what the whole movie is about, which is to some extent she resents being kept 
and passive and, you know, not being able to kind of make decisions of her own. And, you know, the, the kleptomania is a weird way of acting out when you're as rich as she yes. is, right? I mean, she doesn't need the things that she's stealing. Whereas Corvo, who's very kind of hard scrabble, hard driving, underappreciated, you know, he's coded visually in ways where this is not a well-to-do guy. He, he, he bamboozles well-to-do people. Oh yeah, he's not, he's not rich himself. I mean, money and greed and avarice, and then later murder are his problems. And so there's a weird kind of vicarious pleasure, even if it's one we don't want to fully identify with, in the ways that he's kind of using her. And there is obviously a really kind of, uh, you know, a really kind of dark uh, erotic subtext to the movie too, because in addition yeah. to just trying to wire her to steal and then to 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 kill, he's obviously making advances on her too, because they're, they're former partners, but all the things that she acts on unconsciously, like about her, her, her stealing and her frustration and her marriage, they don't open up into a willingness to be with another man. Right. And so mm-hmm. that she's kind of prevented from acting on that by her own subconscious defenses, which kind of makes her boring, but is also yeah. how she stays virtuous within the logic of the movie. Yeah, and for the time period. But it's interesting, while you were talking about um, his wheeling and dealing and the way he was conning people, it was kind of, it is a little bit like you are taking a sick pleasure, kind of like when you watch a Columbo episode and you know who the bad guy is and you're rooting for Columbo, but sometimes you're you're curious as to how they're getting away with it. And, you know, you are taking a little bit of a twisted pleasure. So, that is totally different framing than Night in the City, where Richard Widmark is sweaty, he's out of breath, he's so pathetic um, compared, and he's a hustler and a con man, I should have said. But it, it is kind of an interesting one-two punch when you watch these back-to-back. Yeah, I, for sure. And I would say that, again, we'll get to Night in the City, I'm sure, in a second. I mean, she's more central, obviously, to Whirlpool than she is to, to Night in the City. Yes. I, mean, she's, I mean, she's she's the lead. And in a way, the movie is a kind of battle for her for her whatever between these two men, right? Yeah. The one she used to be with who, when he kind of can't have her back, he sort of decides to, 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 to punish her and use her as an instrument. Mm-hmm. And the man who she's with, who obviously cares for her and dotes on her and is very concerned, but whether you take it literally and he's just not a good psychiatrist or you take it figuratively and like, you know, he's not a good husband or a good lover or whatever else, he kind of just like can't break through to her, right? And so yeah. she's sort of, she's sort of playing a, a, a character who, unlike Laura, who bridles against the control of the sort of men around her. I mean, here she just kind of ping pongs. Mm -hmm. And again, not to be too cute with the off-screen, on-screen stuff. It's interesting too, that this was a period around when she's, she's beginning some of those treatments. Right. And, you know, the idea of a, a movie that exists in this sort of predatory therapeutic context and you you know she doesn't quite know what's being done to her she doesn't remember everything that he he says to her she's acting on things and she doesn't know why she's disoriented she's confused it's just fascinatingly um connected and tied yeah it is and it's um a fascinating follow-up for her and Preminger to um, from Laura, because here you have, again, men being taken in by her, but then manipulating her. Again, she's surrounded by a remarkable collection of dopes, basically. And so it's, yeah, it's fascinating uh, 
in this one, the way that they were putting their own ambitions and holding her up to a certain extent, this one, they're much more nefarious. And I, I find that just really interesting compared to Laura. It's like, be careful who you trust. Don't trust a man you meet at the mall, basically, is the lesson. Yeah, don't, don't, yeah. Don't, don't, don't trust a man you meet at the mall. And I mean, Fair has, he has a number of virtuoso acting sequences in this, but I yes. think I think the scene where he first kind of uh, you know, he's at a party again. Um, my mind just goes here because of because I wrote a book on the filmmaker. But he he's at that party where he's a bit like Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, yeah. where you know he's sort of you know going around and doing this little kind of charlatan stuff with these older not in work with not old ladies, but you know this kind of like a party trick thing. Yeah, that's right. I remember that scene. And the way that he kind of then downshifts from party trick to like very sort of purposeful. Uh, you know, very, very, very sort of purposeful, sort of trying to trying to get her, you know, in a in a in a in a compromising position by telling her, well, you're insomniac and you're tired. I can kind of help you with that. You know, it's it's quite diabolical. And Turney plays, I think, that kind of dazed, susceptible stuff extremely well. I mean, Pauline Kael didn't like the movie partially because she thought that the that that it turned Tierney like quite literally into a kind of sleepwalking character but in that sense the beauty that she has and the blankness of it and the helplessness of it is is really quite compelling i mean that doesn't refute what kale said she didn't like that and i think that for for a lot of viewers it's it's it, it's a good usage of her it, it she's not blank in laura she's not blank and leave her to heaven here playing someone who's kind of acted upon and who's like turned into a little bit of a of a puppet she empties out and does it very well i think I also really respond. I have a genetic issue. I've had a bunch of spine surgeries. So I had a physical disability my whole life, not a mental one. But I love movies that play on disability and prejudice and medical things. So I love the twist of um, Ferrer later, like using as his alibi that he had gallbladder surgery. And then, I mean, it's over the top. Of course, he's hypnotizing himself and doing crazy things. But I just love the way that it plays on. Well, of course, he couldn't do that. Or of course, she, yeah. she didn't do that because they have these things they can't control. And so I really loved that in this one, too. Well, and that's the and that's the 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 same sort of silliness we talk about. Not silly is the wrong word. It's the same, uh, rich, you know, rich lunacy of the plotting in Laura. You have at times in yeah in in, in Whirlpool as well. Um, you know, there's probably at some point some book or or paper to be written or series to be programmed about the relationship between hypnosis and cinema, just in the idea of films as kind of dreams or as kind oh, of oh yeah. Uh, you know, you know, lucid controlled narratives. And like, while I'm not sure Whirlpool would be an absolute first rank movie of that kind, like it's not like um, Europa by, 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 by Von Trier or uh, Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which are both movies I really like on that theme. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's definitely there. And again, it draws a very clear link, I think, between the director's powers of manipulation and what the Corvo character is kind of, you know, you know, kind of capable of. I think that stuff elevates it maybe underneath the surface. Cause I mean, it, it, if you look at the way it was reviewed at the time, it was a very kind of thrown off, tossed off kind of. It being. was. Yeah. But it has a lot of auteur interest in it because of Preminger. And I think it has a lot of, um, you know, late, late blooming scholarly research on it because you can do stuff with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, yeah. you can tease stuff out of it or you can, you can sort of draw metaphors out of it, I think, pretty fulsomely. 
You know, one thing I forgot to ask you on the other one, so I'll start here, is had you read any of the books these were based on? Because I actually haven't. You mean the source novels? Yes. No, I, 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 I hadn't. And it's always a sad thing to confess to not being well read on a podcast. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I think I've I, always I, wanted to read, especially Laura by Vera Caspery. Yeah. No, no, I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't read it. I mean, it's interesting that in all three of those cases, the movie is probably more famous than the source yeah. novel. Like, these were not adaptations of big ticket books. No, not like at all. Rebecca. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or Gone with the Wind. Yeah, or, or, yeah, or, or Gone with the Wind. These were. I mean, and and my understanding is the novel Whirlpool is based on is extremely pulpy as well. It wasn't. Oh, really? Ooh, I would love to read that. Yeah. Sure, if you can find a, if you can find. Yeah, a copy of it. that's always the trick. Yes. Yeah. Well, our final film is one that unfortunately doesn't feature Jean Tierney very much. She still, though, plays a vital yet admittedly minor role. But the film itself is excellent. Jules Dassin's bleakly fatalistic 1950 film noir, Night and the City, which was made during the time that the director found out he was going to be blacklisted. And he wasn't allowed to enter studio property to edit or oversee the musical score for the film. Despite the turmoil, or maybe because of it, this pitch black noir still feels as urgent, fresh, and desperate as it must have been as we watch Richard Widmark's small-time hustler run around London with no clue what to do in order to keep his head above water as one con after another fails disastrously and tragically falls apart. Described as an artist without an art, Widmark tries to scheme his way out of his problems, but gets himself mixed up in the middle of a heartbreaking Greek tragedy of his own making involving a wrestling family. With his old love and friend June Tierney, one of the only people who will still take his calls or help him out, the film follows him to his inevitable, doomed, and ultimately unforgettable end. Literally, in fact, for while I couldn't remember if I had seen it or not for the longest time, as soon as we crossed paths with the wrestlers, the end of the movie came flashing back before my eyes. So what is your relationship like with Night in the City? Uh, a, a very loving relationship. It's All a, right. It's a, it's a wonderful movie. Um, I wrote a piece a few years ago for CinemaScope about um, the history of professional wrestlers in cinema, oh, really? cool. which would now have a lot more material, you know, mm-hmm. I just last night went and saw uh, a preview of The Rock in, in Disney's Jungle, <laughs> Jungle Cruise. Cruise. Oh, I skipped that. that screening. How was it? As a, as a Jean Colette Sarah tourist, I, I, I have many thoughts, but okay. uh, you know, we'll we'll I'll, I'll save those for now. We can talk about All it. Right. Off, off, off <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I wrote about the the interesting relationship between you know spectacle of pro wrestling and the showmanship of pro wrestling and the sort of carnival background of wrestling and the fact that the movies always tried to integrate these larger than life performers and you know night in the city is not maybe a, you know if you were to search on criterion or something i don't think it's filed under a wrestling movie but it is a wrestling you it know. is and, and that and, yeah. and that milieu is really really as you say i love how you called it a greek tragedy because it is it's about a greek wrestling family mm-hmm. whose patriarch upon coming to the u.s sees these smoky bingo halls and what they call wrestling sees it as a betrayal of his art yeah betrayal of his tradition and the richard widmark character among his many 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 transgressions in this movie Ooh, yeah is kind of responsible for destroying this family because even though stanislaus uh, zabisco the 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 age 
patriarch wrestler kind of writes his own death warrant by fighting this young, strong guy, you know, and, and, and dying. Yeah. In He's put in oh, that position because, because of Widmark. So haunting that sequence. Oh my God. It, it is haunting. And it's a beautifully filmed scene because yeah. it's these two men who are, who are, who are, who are fighting in a seemingly kind of controlled rule oriented environment. And it's not, it doesn't look like it's going to be a fight to the death. And it's just so sad that it's, it is a fight to the death for the winner. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, he wins. He 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 yeah. beats the strangler, yeah. but at the expense of his own health. It's yeah. like a little. It's mini- the wrestler. Yeah. It, what is, it is. Yes. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky wishes. Yeah. True. <laughs> what Will's descent has, but um, you know, so I like that aspect of it, and there's wonderful backstory to the movie that supposedly Zabisco, who who you know they had to travel to find was this very cultured sweet man he used to go out and watch experimental theater during shooting with Jules Descent and this you know he, he was the only one who came out with the filmmaker to see mm-hmm. these plays and okay. then he was you know very um you know a, a very erudite thoughtful guy but i also love it as one of the true like rat in a trap back to the wall movies it you know we talked about whirlpool having one kind of dreamlike quality but i mean night in the city really is a nightmare it begins in media it does being chased. Yep. he never stops being chased yeah he's basically it's like after hours he's basically running for the whole movie yep he, he is and and that's the engine that 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 drives him i mean i would say that a movie like uncut gems is a great uh double bill with night in the city I mean, yeah heart attack cinema basically as my friend calls it with athletics in the background and a character who in some ways all of his repressed beta male rage and frailty and kind of inability to be physically strong enough to punch his way out of situations gets transferred onto these people who he's working with i mean in uncut gems obviously sandler's playing a fanatical basketball fan yeah he's got a real kind of fetish for these big black basketball players who come into his shop and night in the city Whitmark's not a wrestler. And that's why that last scene is so powerful because what he runs up against there is the physical strength of the Mike Mazurki character of the strangler who makes good on his name. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when it comes right down to it, Widmark can't defend himself. He can deflect and he can scheme and he can run away and he can double cross and he can beg and he can buy his way out of situations. But, you know, in the flesh, one-on-one, he's nothing. And that's mm-hmm. the way he's treated and disposed of at the end. And it's horrifying. I love Widmark's fearlessness, especially like yeah. this and Kiss of Death. I mean, just like uh, what Gene Tierney did in Leave to Heaven, he takes out a disabled person. I mean, Widmark just went for it. I've always loved that about his uh, performance style. And this movie, y- you are so right to compare it to Uncut Gems. I didn't even think about the athletic, uh, the beta male, alpha male thing. But I love that. I think this would be a perfect double feature. Absolutely. Well, it's all, yeah, and a guy who just can't quit every time he's ahead because it really is... Yeah, what, the great line in, in in the guy's movie in the Safdie's movie is "This is how I win," and that's yeah. the Mark character's uh, mm-hmm. ethos. Except he can't stop losing, and that's why Tierney's interesting because my understanding is she was kind of cast in this movie almost as a kind of favor to Zanuck. You know? Yes, Zanuck was like because again, and it's it's awful language, but it's kind of the language of pity where it's like this person's having a hard. Yeah, time, you know, give her a part. She's not central to the film at all, but 
again, she's playing someone who's putting up with a bad, a, not even a marriage, but, you know, a bad partner. And that, that does kind of bleed over a little bit into what was going on in her, you know, in, in her life and this weird legacy of, you know, surrounding herself with these very strange and difficult men. Mm-hmm. Um, she's good. She's in the movie for a long time at the beginning. I mean, the movie really yeah. kind of begins with her and him and she's sort of trying to talk him out of his one last scheme. And then she disappears and she's paired up with her neighbor. Who's obviously a much better love match yes. for her. Yeah. Who's like kind and decent and cooks spaghetti and stuff, I but, know. She, but she's still drawn towards Widmark. And I think she plays that compulsion pretty well until right up at the end where she just literally can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then what is she? She's sort of just a witness to his his doom. Yeah. I read a review that was from the time talking about how uh, they had a problem with the fact that there were no likable characters except basically the Tierney character. Like yeah. there's no one to root for. And it's kind of like, well, that isn't the movie. The movie is we're just with him making one bad decision after another. And it's kind of like watching a movie about gamblers, like Uncut Gems or even California Split, which is very funny, but it's also dark. Like they just can't stop. And that's basically what we're seeing here. Yeah. yeah and the movie has that same metabolism. I mean, Desan is famous for his, for his heist thrillers. I mean, he's actually a very multifaceted filmmaker. Oh yeah. Brilliant it, filmmaker. I was going to ask you actually, what is your favorite Desan? Do you have a, Favorite? Well, I, I I give an answer that betrays you know what you see at what age and what's oh, what's formative. I mean, I I I love and used to though no longer in my office. You know, have a poster for Rafifi. I mean, it's just oh, I love that movie. Yeah, amazing. But I mean, with with Night in the City, you can sort of see again the the noir lighting, sort of the noir style. It's close to the curb the whole movie. You know, mm-hmm. but then it also has these wonderful, and this isn't antithetical to noir or anything, but it's very kind of uh, French or very kind of very European. These wonderful longueurs of just characters sitting and kind of just, you know, batting their <laughs> neuroses yeah. and and frustrations back and forth at each other, and everyone is so thwarted. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, often in noir you have the one thwarted protagonist, and then you know the world is sort of indifferent to him. But like everyone in this movie, except for Tierney, not just unlikable, but they're so pent up. Yes. You know? Yeah, and they're everyone, kind of using each other. Yep. Pent up, using each other, holding on to these dreams, and then because it's a movie, the pleasure comes from the fact that actually they can articulate these things. And I love, you know, the the, the married couple who he kind of drives a wedge between, who he oh yes out. Another uh, one. So fatalistic. Yes. Fatalistic. They both have their problems. It's it's sad, in fact, that these two people have such problems with each other because they're so on the same page in terms of their scheming and self-interest, which is, of course, why they can't be with each other. Mm-hmm. But the way that he kind of bounces between them and they both use him and he uses them. I mean, it's just such a clever, it's such a clever script and such a wonderful bit of mood. And yeah, I mean, I, I loved what you said off the top about not being able to forget the ending because late 40s, early 50s, mid 50s, there's no lack of great fatalistic noir endings. No, not at all. Like The Killing and and, and, and Treasure of the Sierra Madre. But this one, there's something... Or Crisscross, yeah. Or Crisscross. But there's something about this one that is just the the existential uppercut of it. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to put it. 
Yes. You know, that this character has escaped all of these situations and really this should just be one more, but eventually one is the last one, mm-hmm. you know, and the yes. indifference of it is just gutting. It is. I read a piece, I can't remember who wrote it when I was doing research on this a few weeks ago, that was comparing, you mentioned the married couple. She is with an older man who obviously adores her, even though they're both uh, at each other's throats and stuff. Um, But they were comparing that relationship of somebody being with someone older and more physically imposing with the Widmark character and the wrestler. And I thought that was a really um, creative way to link those two. Yeah, for 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 sure. Uh, you know, it, it is. And again, I think bodies and and physicality are just so wonderfully realized within yeah. uh, are, are so wonderfully realized within the film. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, the the other movie that it feels a little bit like is uh, I don't know if you've seen the setup, which I just oh yes, yeah, Robert, Robert Ryan, right? Ryan, which again is sort of about. I mean, but you know, I mean, Night in the City is almost like if the setup was not from the point of view of the boxer, right? The boxers and the athletes yeah. were kind of more in the background and the setup, this past his prime fighter who feels reduced to a piece of meat is kind of who the movie is told through. But the two movies, again, have this same kind of nightmare logic and this same idea of a good woman, uh, which is such a trope. Saying it out loud, you just want to cringe, you know, a, yeah. a good woman but... and, and a bad guy. Yes. Uh, and where her, her goodness really does nothing for him. No. Not at all. Yeah. The bad boy. I always uh, found it really creative and kind of daring that they went with wrestling instead of boxing because this era was full of good boxing pictures, maybe too many. And maybe that's why they did that. Or I'm not sure if it was in the novel. Well, it's why it's why, well, it's it's also why I always think of it in connection to the killing, which also has the wonderful, uh, the, the wonderful passage with, the wrestler and it's, you know, Kubrick's movies are full of literal and figurative kind of chess games, but I always love Sterling Hayden playing chess with this big wrestler. And it's actually not a contrast between the body and the, and the brain. Cause the wrestler is also a master chess player. I know. And you sort of think, you know, that's that, that unexpected. It's, yeah. un, un, unexpected and really sort of quite a great set of images in the killing where on the one hand we see him playing chess and then later he's, you know, creating that diversion at the bar and an airplane spinning the guy, around and you know those two extremes of, of brutality and cerebral thought are sort of what you get in in in, in Kubrick I mean with with Night in the City I think the what put it this way the killing is a movie that wears its existentialism pretty brazenly on its sleeve the narration and the dialogue is constantly calling attention to the fact like that these people are clowns to the point of them actually putting a clown mask on i love the killing and it's not about putting it down in comparison to night in the city but one of the things i love about night in the city is that stuff's not italicized it no. works for Kubrick to do it that way. Yeah. Nothing against the killing. Great movie, love it. Mm-hmm. But but Night in the City, it's uh, uh, it's a little less deliberate. In it is. They come out anyway. Yeah. But they're not as up top. No, it's interesting you're talking about the killing because yesterday was Stanley Kubrick's birthday, and I shared a couple of frames from the end of the killing and mm-hmm. said happy birthday to the master of movie endings because that ending is, I mean, Kubrick all of his endings but this ending in particular is one of my favorites and it's one that just stays with you and sears in your brain the first time you watch it kind of like night in the city yeah yeah no they are both they 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 are both great endings and i guess you can pick and choose what's crueler is it crueler to uh not live to see the consequences of your actions or is it crueler to be forced to live with them the way that it seems like sterling hayden is 
at 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 the end of the killing. I mean, those mm-hmm. two movies would be a good would be a good double bill. I kind of like the uncut gems night in the city. Double I do bill. too. Yeah. We're programming a whole festival. Adam. Yeah, That's what we're doing. Basically the whole festival. Yes. But I mean, also, Let's I think call mad we... solar sites and get this thing in motion. Yes. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we probably stopped with night in the city beyond just our shared choice of the movies we wanted to watch and talk about is that Jean Tierney doesn't have a lot of great late roles. No, she doesn't sadly. Not, not really. And again, that has to do hugely with the, <laughs> The, the massively compromised personal life, yes, um, which kind of took her out of to 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 took her out of circulation. I mean, she made uh, the mating season, and she made Left that Hand was of good. God. Yeah. I mean, there are there are films later on, but they 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 dissipate. They do. I did see one that I thought was very interesting uh, called Personal Affair. I believe I've never seen in. that. Okay, that one I found on YouTube. Let me make sure I'm giving you the right. Yes, personal affair. It's in England, and she's a wife of a teacher who a younger student, a girl, has like an infatuation with. And she kind of confronts her, you're in love with my husband. Then the girl goes missing. It's like, what happened? And um, it's it's very talky, but I thought it was, it showed interesting um dynamics and range for tyranny because you know she is is she to blame what does her husband know what is their relationship and you can kind of see that all play out but yeah it is sad as the 50s go on she just wasn't in as many or didn't have those roles no and the only late role that i remember her is and i want to see the movie you just mentioned because it sounds like she has a lead and i haven't seen it but the late role she has is with preminger and advise and consent yes in 62 yeah, which she's in, and she's not a lead. I mean, it's her, and it's not mm-hmm. a hugely featured performance, but it's more than more than a walk on. And again, that speaks to a loyalty on Preminger's part. You know, working with her once she's come out the other end of certain parts of, of of her of her treatment and 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 certain parts of her trauma. But you know, there's a lot of comeback narratives in Hollywood, both real ones and kind of media fabricated ones. But it 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 wasn't one that she chose. And I should say that for people who haven't read Self-Portrait, one of the highest, one of the best things I can say about it is even given what she went through, you get the sense of Jean Tierney Circa when she wrote that book. There's someone who's very capable of choosing and knowing and thinking and and thinking about her career. And there's not really a tone of, uh, you know, this was all kind of taken away from me and I'm angry about it. She's reflective about it and she's, she's sad about it. But for such a harrowing book, it's not... Uh, particularly bitter one and as a parent wow. the, the passages where she talks about her first uh, her first kid and sort of what she went through and the choices both that she didn't want to make and that she did make it's it's really really heartbreaking I mean to measure it against today in terms of what people know and how people might be advised and how treatment might be done. It obviously feels like a, 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 a book from another era, but she talks about having this kid and feeling like she, this daughter and feeling like she didn't know how to care for her and didn't know what kind of life, you know, she was going to have or, or grow into. And when she talks yeah. about giving her up, it, uh, it's hard to read. It's I hard can't to imagine. Read. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, her last film was, of course, The Pleasure Seekers, where yeah. she played uh, the wife of a man who is involved with a younger woman and Margaret Carol Lindley are in it. It's actually just kind of a nice escapist movie. I believe it was in Italy. But she was um, discovering that Hollywood was moving on and she was 
going to keep having to play like the other or the wife or something. Oh, it's in Madrid. Sorry. It's uh, three American lovelies room together in Madrid. Yes. And so that was uh, Jean Tierney's last movie. But yeah, she really didn't have that many big roles after the 50s for all of those reasons. But of course, there are many other Tierney films to recommend. One you had wanted to discuss, Shanghai Gesture, is unavailable here in the States. I found myself, as I said, like scouring and watching several other Tierneys on YouTube, movies like The Mating Season, also The Iron Curtain with Dana Andrews, where he's like in Canada and he's a spy for Russia. It's really good. Are there any others we didn't mention that you would like to recommend? Well, well, Shanghai, Shanghai Gesture, I just thought would have been quite, <laughs> would have been quite something to talk about because it's okay. a, a really, I mean, retrospectively very incorrect <laughs> And pretty, pretty, pretty campy movie. But it was also, I think, the first time, and it's not surprising that von Sternberg would be the guy, where a director just was like, "Oh, that's how you photograph this this person," you know? Ah, okay. She, the way she looks in that in that the black and white film, the way she 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 looks in that film is sort of just stunning. And when you look at the the, the reviews of it again, you have that sort of cruelty, and it's a cruelty that endures to today. And when you have you know male critics writing about about, about women, you know, I wrote a whole book on showgirls, so I can dive in and no, yeah. acknowledge of the way that people wrote about Elizabeth Berkeley. But yeah, mm-hmm. in Shanghai Gesture, people are like, you know, pretty face, can't act, whatever else. Yes, yeah, some of those um, early reviews were pretty cruel, um, even for the movies before that, because they would bring up her uh, wealthy, well-to-do background all the time. And when she And she talks about that in the book, too, and that there were some notices, some reviews that she just found kind of funny and she sort of saved them you know whether it was a question of taking them to heart or sort of trying to prove them wrong but I mean this is I mean we maybe should not should have said this off the top but since we're talking about you know looks versus acting I mean she she deliberately went and tried to learn her craft on the stage instead of the apocryphal Lana Turner's malt shop thing like she was a pro I mean, she was approached when she was 18 or 19 with the you ought to be in pictures kind of pickup line. Mm-hmm. And she ended up there. But it was after a period of really conscientiously trying to turn herself into an actor and having pride in the technique and having pride in the instrument. And that circles all the way back to what Scorsese said, where for all the good movies we've talked about, I think what makes his statement true, not that she wasn't famous and successful and a draw and that the movies aren't good, but for casting reasons, she just wasn't in enough really great ones. And it's a shame that there's some, that, 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 that there weren't more, uh, the ones that she's in, I guess I'm saying are actually pretty good. They're not obscure, but there aren't really that many great ones. And that's, I think a failure of, of, of casting directors at the time or of filmmakers at the time, because she could have been amazing in some other parts. Yeah, she did very much take her craft seriously. In an interview I watched with Oleg Cassini, he was talking about how when she would have like a morning call, she still stayed up with him until one in the morning, like going over lines. He's like, it was very boring, he said. Uh, So it kind of reflects on, yeah, that marriage was doomed. But you know, she was really trying um, to make sure that she earned her spot. I think play against the beauty. She she knew how to work it, but she wanted to be more than just a pretty face. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, that 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 of all lines was maybe a good place to. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to thank you so much, Adam, for doing this, being here, talking 
Gene Tierney with me. I greatly appreciated this. Absolutely. It was a, it was a pleasure. And maybe in, in future, we can settle on some other phenomenally beautiful person. And, you bet. Uh, talk, talk, talk about them. Sounds good. Thank you so much. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.